and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and I'm here with Mary-Kate O'Flanagan. Um, now, Mary-Kate has an amazing career as a screenwriting teacher, a consultant. You travel around the world. You're a professional storyteller. You're a scriptwriter. Um, you have legions of fans. I know like a lot of, <laughs> I, a lot of people love taking your courses and will seek you out no matter where you're teaching. Well, now so, I want to be me. You describe yes. it so well. <laughs> yes, that sounds great. Uh, the Moth Grand Slam champion in Ireland and LA. I was very proud of that. That is amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I had so much fun doing that. So storytelling is definitely um, something that you're incredible at. There, It's all, it all is just different types. It's all, yeah. And it's all about the structure and the narrative and the emotional um, journey of of the person either listening or watching or mm-hmm. or hearing it so so that that's why it was my it's kind of cheeky trying to segue it into oh I'm so glad um, yes. you did yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so glad you did so yeah not only are you like a massive expert and have helped I would say the vast majority of of Irish writers were at a certain level at some stage you your eyes had peered over their scripts I'd say um but also you are writing your own so you've had Six, I think, on your website was there six scripts. I think it's I think it's seven, seven, seven? or eight. I think oh, I can safely yes. say that two of them will never see the light of day, and that's you know that's the way that the business yeah. goes sometimes. Um, but uh, I have one that's not optioned. I think it's my best one, <laughs> but it's set in America, so yeah. it's a little harder to find a producer for that. And then so there are sort of four or five that are alive, yeah. and a couple of. TV pilots that are in development and optioned. So excellent. Yeah, we 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 travel hopefully. What did they? I think it's I can't remember who said it. it's better to travel hopefully than arrive, and I'm like, oh well, that's a good thing because I've travelled hopefully a lot more than I've ever arrived, um, in terms of my own writing. Yes, and when it comes to um story and characters, well, mm-hmm. what is it initially that gets you going? And and you kind of you know I presume there's millions of ideas. There's one that kind of sticks. How, what's your process like? Well, what happens is I'm I'm very attracted to true life stories, and I didn't know that about myself. But when I look back on the projects that I've finished, as opposed to all the ones I've thought about or talked about or noodled with more often than not they've been real life stories now sometimes I've just jumped away from the actual facts of the story and I've just said well that gave me an idea so I think what it is for me is I think about a predicament and I think who did that and why did they do that and what would I do if I were in that situation and you know I've always been a great gossip really as in I can't think of anything better than sitting around with cups of tea chatting with my sisters and my friends and going but then do you remember he did this now what was that about you know trying to figure out what human beings are and why they do the things that they do and that's what interests me I love science fiction like Kurt Vonnegut is up there with my favorite authors um but the thing I love about science fiction and supernatural stories is how they just jump us into the extreme and you go why what would I do or how would that work and what's the truth about how people would react in a situation like that um but I have you know I've written across all genres except for horror yeah I'm not a great horror fan only because I take movies so seriously 
they absolutely scared the pants off me. Yeah. <laughs> so the last horror I saw in the cinema was called It Follows and I wasn't right for weeks afterwards. And I wouldn't, if I'd known it was a horror, I wouldn't have gone to it. Yeah. Um, but I was invited by friends and it sounded to me like a romantic story or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't write horror, but I've written an action. I've written a political thriller. I've written a comedy caper. Like, so it's not that I'm attracted to particular genres i'm i'm attracted to predicaments how would you find the characters to go in those predicaments would you know them would they be a little bit of you would they be sneakily components of everyone you know i think for every writer it's difficult not to make every character yourself because you're always trying to walk in the shoes of the character but what can happen then and certainly my sister rachel who's always my script editor, and my sister Rebecca Flanagan. That's very handy. (laughs) I am lucky. Um, And my sister Rebecca Flanagan, who's a producer, Papi Chulo's the stag and handsome devil. But Rebecca's also very strong on story. And one of the things that they would say to me about my early writing, you know, was they all sound like you. Mm. All of the characters sound like you. And they were always, you know, pushing me to not do that. So... One of the ways in which I find characters is I look at their motivations. Yeah. Um, I found the Enneagram a great tool for that. Um, and that's kind of a whole other conversation, but it's spelt E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. So that was fascinating. I was in your class when you were teaching that and I could not like I, I was Googling it. I was trying to find out who everybody was on this. It's like it's like a it's like a, a chart and everyone fits into a chart and they all interact with personality types, interact with each other in specific ways. And I remember like and I, I, I made everyone that I used to work with <laughs> and do the test. And I was like, oh, you're this. And it was very it was it was just fascinating. Well, just yeah. for the listeners who don't know the Enneagram, yeah. you know, the thing that it looks at is what's your primary motivation and of course we're all unique and we're all a fascinating constellation of many many different motivations and influences in our lives but in a cinema story you only have time to deal with the primary motivation and at cinema or television in a dramatic story when you push people all the other things are going to fall away And then the primary motivation is going to be the thing that's going to be tested. So I found the Enneagram a really great tool for helping me uh, get to the heart of my characters. But, you know, in the process of writing, sometimes I'll go, "Mm, I've got this character wrong and I need to switch it up or start thinking about her in a different way or him in a different way. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm co-writing now with more than one person, which I'm finding really enjoyable. Um, but one of my co-writers, Gavin Ryan, um, he always says, you want everybody to be nice and I want everybody to be awful. And I love working with him for that reason, you know, um, but like he goes gong and y'all really quick, you know, he will have everybody beheading each other, um, and murdering each other, which is great because you want to push things. And, you know, I would tend to make everybody noble which is a mistake, although nobility is a subject that really interests me. Um, But between the two of us, I think we do better. He makes me look more at the ugly. I mean, my answer to Gavin is I want everybody to be nice and then I want to make them do awful, awful things because, you know, that's where the juice of it is. Um, But 
I suppose some of that is a little bit mysterious. I've never consciously tried to base a character on someone I know because I think that human beings are mysterious and unknowable. But I do always ask myself, where is this person's Achilles heel? I suppose that's something that I always come back to. And there's another thing that actually Nyasa Hardiman, um, a great film and television maker, um, she got me to do this a number of years ago. And I often do it with groups of writers with whom I'm working, which is a really um, short and easy way to find the theme that interests you the most. And what you do is the question is write down very quickly. Don't edit yourself and don't think about anybody else looking at this list. Write down very quickly the movies that you would rewatch if you were at home. Just, you know, a mild dose of flu, let's say. But you're not, you've nothing else to do. You're not well enough to read or work. So what are you going to rewatch? And, you know, sometimes I can tell when somebody has, you know, thought, well, I'll just write the most fancy and impressive films. Although some people maybe would rewatch Tarkovsky for fun. Um, but the films that I wrote down were... The ones that I most frequently rewatch are Tootsie, Lawrence of Arabia, Broadcast News, Catch Me If You Can, and a little French film called Romwald, R-O-M-U-A-L-D, A Juliette, which is obviously a play on Romeo and Juliet. And you look at that list, so you've got five films, and I was going, well, I think they're quite disparate. Yes, there's a strong Hollywood influence there, but they're all from different decades and they're on very different themes or very different subjects and different genres. And the idea is then you look at that and go, but what do they have in common? What theme do they have in common? And I couldn't see it right away. You very often can't see your own right away. But Nyasa looked at it and said, it's all about people wearing masks. And I was like, Oh, it is. Yes. It's about style over substance. It's about how if you can manipulate your appearance, you can manipulate the world around you. Um, And I was having this conversation with somebody in L.A. who was like, Lawrence of Arabia? And I was saying, oh, but Lawrence of Arabia is most vivid to me when they give him the robes and they're like, you're one of us now. And he's delighted with himself, but he can't fully enjoy the moment until he goes behind a sand dune and tries to look at himself in the reflection on his knife. Like he needs, it's the image of himself and he's, he's myth making, creating himself as Lawrence of Arabia. And that's a big part of what motivates him. So I have realised although lots and lots of different stories and predicaments interest me, what I inevitably end up writing about is if you wear a mask, do you become the mask? Or if you wear a mask, who are you when you take the mask off? And no matter what story I'm telling, it always ends up for me boiling back down to that theme. And I don't mean it to. It's just the thing that fascinates me, I guess. And do you find your stories will change on depending on on where you are like you know personally who your influences are where like almost 100%. emotionally you are you know like sometimes I just I know if I'm writing things sometimes you're writing a much happier story and then sometimes you're writing the worst story and it actually I find it doesn't even correlate to one or the other but it will shift do you yeah I mean yeah. I, I I hope it doesn't change emotionally because I would say I am 
I think mercurial would be a nice word for it um, in my emotions. So I can have seven different emotions in a day or in an hour. Um, But life events, certainly, like I was writing a comedy at the time that my father died suddenly and I couldn't continue to write that comedy. I had to put it aside for a year. Um, uh, So, you know, something like that really shifted things and... I was writing a story that even though it involves people putting on disguises, etc., it's ultimately about faith and religion and the difference between those two things. And it was difficult for me to find the ending of that um, because I was lucky and I know this is rare, but I had good experiences with the nuns that educated me and with the priests that were in my life. And there was one particular priest, Father Pod, who was a great family friend of ours, came in and out of our home like three or four times a week, as well as we'd always see him at mass on a Sunday. And he was a really important person to me and my sisters and my parents. And this story was grappling with where we are with the Catholic Church today. And I found that I wasn't able to slough it off as easily as most people of my generation it felt ungrateful, yeah. but it was a real struggle to write that story. And I wasn't able to find the ending until I was able to come to terms with my own feelings yeah. about the Catholic Church. And that's taken a long time. That's taken years yeah. because the two things were intertwined and it was difficult for me to write that story while I was still struggling with where do I stand on that and you know I felt a lot of loyalty to the faith of my fathers I felt a lot of respect for the goodness that I could see in the religious people that helped to raise me yeah and I think it's too easy and facile an answer to go they're all evil they're not Um, There's a lot of strength that's found in people who have a formal way of practicing religion. Yeah. That people who don't have a formal way of practicing religion just don't have that same access. So to me, it wasn't an easy subject at all. I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but life events change the way that I will look at a story or think about a story. and. That was probably that's the one that's probably more most recent that I would think about that and go, but there have been other things I suppose. Yes, my own journey through life, you know, would change the way I look at certain stories. And there's some stories I look at that I started five years ago that have no interest for me now because I'm no longer interested in that subject. And just say if you're in a story and you you like the story, but you get stuck, mm-hmm. aside from having an in-house script supervisor that you can <laughs> ring up at any stage and be like, Ellie, mm. what, what would be your advice then? And what would you do? Well, I don't have a lot of access to my sisters because they're both very busy professionals. So um, I don't, y- y- yeah, of course, they are a brilliant resource to work with, but I have to. I have to be cognizant of the fact that I can't be expecting their time when they both probably work 60 hours a week as it is. Um, I go back to the basic principles and I ask myself, whose story is it? What did they want before the story started and what are they trying to achieve now? And how does it end? You know, one of the things that I read in the great Alexander McKendrick's book on filmmaking, he talks about 
Buster Keaton, when those guys like back in the early days of cinema, they were making like three and four feature films a year. Like that's amazing, that rate of production. So they had teams of writers, but he would always, according to Alexander McKendrick, say, what's the predicament? What's the ending? Don't worry about the middle because we can write that. And I know myself, I'm strong on plot. I can do that. I can plot anything, but I need to figure out where I'm going. Um, But I remember like one time I was walking down Bagger Street thinking about an idea that I had that was stuck in the middle and I happened to bump into David Keating, um, who's also a great filmmaker. And he was like, hey, how are you doing and what are you doing? And I was like, I'm thinking about this idea and it keeps sort of collapsing in the middle. And he was like, let me buy you a coffee because nothing excites him more than talking yeah. about story. And uh, so you're know, bumping it. Well, I mean, that case I bumped into him, but I would seek him out another time. So going to somebody who does this and finds this fun and going, so I'm noodling with this idea. What do you think? Um, they very often will ask the right questions. You yeah. know, Andrew Meehan was such a great uh, development exec at the film board. And I remember having meetings with him about projects. And I I had so much respect for him because he would always ask me the questions I couldn't answer. Um, And so another set of eyes very often will go, well, what about this? And what's she doing? And why is he over there? You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I once had, I met a lot of these people because I do the screenwriting masterclass at the Galway Film Flower every year. It's how I know a lot of the people that I do know in LA. Um, but one of them, Gil Dennis, rest in peace, um, he passed a few years later. He wrote Walk the Line and he has a writing credit on the Black Stallion. He wrote a bunch of great things. Walk the Line is the one that Reese Witherspoon won the Oscar for. That was the Johnny Cash story. But he was a somebody who dedicated a lot of his life to teaching screenwriting as well. And he'd said to me when I met him, hey, you know, I'd love to read something of yours. You know, do you want, can I read something of yours? And I was like, um, oh, I, I wouldn't dream of asking you. And he said, you didn't. Uh, but I would like to read something of yours. And I was like, could I pay you? And the person who introduced us was like, okay. And I was like, well, it's like, Gil is one of the best paid script doctors in Hollywood, so it would cost you about 250000 to hire him. So don't, don't. He's offering you a favour. Um, So I sent him something that I had, and we'd arranged to meet up in LA, and he kept saying, I haven't read your script yet, but I will soon. And the reason for that is because Gil was such a generous soul. He said this to nearly everybody he met. Hey, can I read a script of yours? I'd love to read something of yours. I'll give you feedback on it. And so he actually was always very time poor. And it ended up that he was like, like the day before, he was like, I haven't read it yet, but I'll read it tonight. And I was like, do you know what, Gil? Don't, because I actually just want your company. But I will tell you the story and then you can help me fix it. How about that? And I will be as succinct as I can be. And so we met for breakfast the next morning and he said, so tell me your story. And I started telling it to him and two minutes in, he went, wait, what? Why is that character there? And I said, oh, um, because, and he said, no, but you started off telling me this story saying it's about a man who's trapped between two women, his mother and his wife. And now you've got a third female character. Why have you got a third female character? And I said, oh, um, I think she's, oh, actually, this has answered your earlier question. She's me. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you don't belong in that story. 
And I was like, she's me imagining myself coming in and rescuing somebody. <laughs> and he was like, you don't belong in that story. He said, take that character out. And I said, okay, we're done. And that was it, you know, and I was like, let's just have breakfast now. And sure enough, like when I did that, people who'd read it before then were saying, oh, the brother is really under, you know, represented the brother's story is really underdeveloped and I went take out that female character now actually what fills that lacuna is the brother character and the whole thing just fell together it was like you you had the right key for a lock that you've been trying you know for you know you tried 20 keys it didn't work so sometimes something like that can happen and I do know it's also Paddy Bromack's process quite often here because it's hard for people to read screenplays because generally they're not very well developed they're much harder to read than novels um and Paddy will go tell me the story tell me the story and that can be a fantastic way to get yourself out of a hole for me anyway yeah. you know for me um and sometimes <laughs> I've learned from that to tell the story to myself out loud so I'll be walking around on my own um, because people don't like it if I do it when they're there. Um, If I'm on my own in the apartment, I'll be walking around and I'll probably be doing something like conditioning my hair or something. But I'll be I'll start and tell the story for myself and I'll look for when I get bored. You know, and I'm like, ha, that's where the problem is. If I've gotten bored trying to push through that bit of the story, then there's something wrong. And then you go back to the drawing board and noodle with it a bit more. Yes. And you were saying you've done all these different genres Mm -hmm. with regards beats, with regards to character style. Do you feel like you'd have to shift gears into going from one genre to another because they'd have a lot of their own styles? Or would you prefer to do try and do something quite different? Um. I, you know, as everybody says, comedy is hard. Comedy's mm. the hardest. I don't think of them in different ways. I wait and see what is emerging. Um, like I don't necessarily decide. Um, like that story I was telling you about that road movie that's set in the States, you know, Rob Walpole read it and he said, I think you should make it more of a high comedy. And I was like, it's not a comedy at all. And he said, Oh, it is. And he was like, it's funny. Like, there are funny parts of it. But he said, I think you just push all of that, like, make it just much higher. And I hadn't even realised that it was a little bit funny. But I guess I myself have something of a comic sensibility. Um, But intentionally writing comedy is so difficult because I just constantly go, is that really lame? Is that really lame? (laughs) So I've done it twice and I've not really, it's kind of a relief when you go, no, I'm writing drama. You know, um, I think things with subplots are much harder for me. You know, I have to trace those out much harder. So a political thriller necessarily has subplots because it's all about subterfuge and who knows what and when they know it and what's really going on. And how do you manage that and how do you pay that out for the audience? So a cork board with a lot of index cards and different coloured felt tip pens. I kind of love that. I really love that. Like, I love crossword puzzles. Do you know, I love uh, things like that. Like, how do you put these things together? I love um, mysteries, you know, and I love detective stories for that reason. So I like that, but I need to put it up on a big board to have a look at it. I suppose 
in every genre that I've written. Something that I struggle with is I write long. You can probably tell from this podcast. <laughs> I am wordy. <laughs> you know, I'm wordy and I may I add more detail than I need. And that is when I need my sister Rachel um, with her, you know, red felt tip pen going, don't need it, don't need it. You told me that already. You told me that already. Um, or somebody like that. Um, so, uh, but I, I don't tend to think of myself as writing in different modes because the comedies that I have written I'm always trying to write a comedy that feels like it's real so I don't write comedy in the style of something like there's something about Mary I always want it to feel like we're rooted in a real world so I'm more likely to write a comedy in the style of Tootsie or When Harry Met Sally or something like that that feels like it's really real and you could meet these people if you walked out the door does that make sense yes so I guess I I don't think of myself as shifting gears and then with regards um the the script midwifing yes yeah it's gorgeous because <laughs> you are birthing an idea and it, well the writer is birthing yeah. an idea and you're helping it and Rachel always said like script doctor is a very masculine idea mm. like here comes the surgeon with their scalpel you lie there like a patient or the script lies there like a patient and the surgeon is going to cut it away and you know fix whereas Rachel likes to say we're script midwives in recognition of the fact that it's the writer that is doing the labour yeah <laughs> but we can say we've seen this a thousand times before. Yeah. You're in safe hands and we have ways of making this easier for you. We have yeah. ma- ways of making this an easier process for you. But we want to acknowledge always that it's the writer that's doing the work. Oh, that's like it's a, it's a lovely phrase. What would be, say, the most common errors that early writers would make? The most common errors... And and it's not just early writers yeah. is not understanding. This is in my view. In my view, um, I once said in my what's the opposite of humble? <laughs> my friend was like, <laughs> well, we... well informed. <laughs> well, he yeah. was like, shall we go with your universally exalted opinion? Um, <laughs> no. So in my view, I should I should add, it's the want of understanding that it all hinges on dramatic tension. Yeah, and so a lot of early drafts of projects are slices of life yeah. and the way that I recently was m- making a new presentation I was for Northern Ireland screen but I was trying to find a new way of saying this and the way that I did it was I was the best way I could say it is say imagine if somebody invited you to dinner and all you were served was bread and for the purpose of my PowerPoint presentation, I had the most beautiful looking loaf of Jewish rye bed that I could possibly find. I was going, that's some delicious bread and care has gone into the making of it. But if you went to someone's house for dinner and all they served you was bread, you would be taken aback and unsatisfied. Even if your belly was full, even if you ate enough yeah. bread, you would be unsatisfied because that's not what you expected. And I think it's the want of understanding that, yes, introduce me to a world. Yes, introduce me to these characters but now I need a predicament you know yeah I mean there's an anecdote that I often tell uh so apologies to any of your listeners who've heard me telling it before that I was at the Galway Film Flat a few years ago and our guest that year was Daniel Waters Daniel wrote Heathers and Demolition Man and uh he wrote a couple of things the adventures of Ford Forlane that were 
not big successes. Um, oh, Batman Returns, my favorite Batman. He said, that's how I know you're not a Batman fan because <laughs> Batman fans don't like that one. It's the Tim Burton, Daniel Waters one with Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. But, you know, I no, could repeat. That's a, good, that's a good Batman. I mean, the, the universally bad one was Batman and Robin. Well, apparently Batman fans didn't like it because, as Daniel himself will say, they were more interested in Catwoman than they were yeah. in Batman. So it's the Batman movie that has the least screen time for actual Batman. But anyway, he's a great writer and he's been around, he came out of the traps with Heathers. So, you know, he knows what he's talking about. But um, he handed me the program and he said, you should decide what we go to see because I don't know the festival and I don't know anything about the program. But I actually had been working overseas for about a month before that and hadn't had a minute to glance at the program. But as I was looking through it, I said, you know, what's kind of dispiriting about this is that these descriptions of the films have not been written by reviewers. And in many cases, they haven't been written by the festival programmers. They've been written by the filmmakers themselves to make us want to go to see that film. So the filmmakers themselves, but I said, but about 40 or 50 percent of them boil down to a man walks around feeling his feelings. That's the description of it. And Daniel went. Then he finds a bag of mob money, right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know, but I mean, he has that very Hollywood sensibility. Like yeah. he has to find a bag of mob money. He doesn't have to find a bag of mob money, but something has to happen to interrupt the daily life, you yeah. know? And so, you know, that's sometimes like, something happens, but then it's, it's the, you know, we talk about audiences will talk about the film sat down in the middle so it's like there's a little spurt of action and then the person becomes dispirited and passive again you know yeah. um and so the thing that i would always be talking about with people who are setting out or even if you've got a project that you know is not 100 percent working is interrogate it and go have i set up a dramatic tension and really maintained it yeah throughout all of act two and then in act three have i kicked it up another gear you yeah. know um i think it's that is the most common thing and i mean i work a lot more in europe than i work in ireland so it's hard for me to say in ireland generally but certainly in europe even the concept of dramatic tension can be a new idea for yeah. people you know um, and I'm always like, well, OK, once you've got this, I think your screenplays are going to become so much better, so much stronger. And you normally do um, you you normally work with sequences. Yes. You just and you just there. How many sequences per film roughly would you have again? Usually there are eight. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody knows uh, that a story has a beginning, middle and an end. But. You know, I always knew that and I was always a great reader and I was always fascinated by stories. But it was only when I started studying the structure of screenplays specifically that I started to understand what that means, a beginning, middle and an end. Because I used to just be like, well, obviously, why are you telling me that it needs a beginning, a middle and an end? But when I studied um, with the professors from the University of Southern California, it was laid out for me. Here's how it works. And then it was laid out for me that there are chapters in films. So the beginning, almost always, not 100%, but almost always, your act one is the status quo of the person and then how that gets interrupted. 
and some people call that the inciting incident but it's just how their regular life which often is weird like if it's midnight cowboy it's like they're hustlers in 1970s new york it's not normal to us but it's normal to them and then how that gets interrupted and then the beginning of act two for me is defined and you know i didn't make this up i mean what i learned was it's defined by the moment the character has decided how they're going to struggle with that so I mean, a really good example is a supernatural story. So someone's living their ordinary life and a supernatural element enters it. Either it's apparently benign and is going to give them superpowers or it's apparently malignant, like a haunting, and they're going to have to battle it. And then they make a plan about how they're going to do that. And all of Act 2 is about how they're going to deal with the problem that they have now. And it doesn't have to be supernatural. It could be you're a lonely girl and you meet a gorgeous guy and then you're like I want to be with that guy but he doesn't look at me how am I going to get to be with him so it's just that moment when ordinary life is interrupted in the beginning of act two is how do you battle with it and then I'll just jump to act three is always false resolution true resolution so if you're going to have a happy ending the beat before that in act three will be the worst of the worst and apparently all is lost if it's a love story, the lovers will be parted. If it's a fight against an unjust force or person, apparently they will have beaten you at that stage, you know, and then there'll be another turn. And if it's a tragedy, the beat before that, apparently the person will be on top of the world. So the middle, again, Rachel often says um, early screenplays, including my own, are a beginning, a muddle and an end. <laughs> But I find sequences to be, after understanding dramatic tension, that kind of eureka of act two, because you need to keep surprising the audience. So the second thing I do when I've got the broad strokes of my story is I sit down and I look at act two and I go, how can that be divided into separate chapters? Usually four. But... I've seen great movies that have three sequences in Act 2. I've seen a lot of European films that have two sequences in Act 1, four in Act 2, a brief beat of Worst of the Worst and really one sequence in Act 3. Um, so there are a lot that are seven epic films like Lawrence of Arabia. It's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to count. Um, but I think certainly has 10 and may have 11 or 12 sequences. Um but generally, you'll have two, four, two. I mean, Adam and Paul is a great example of something that has a very short act one um, because part of what you're doing in the second part of act one is convincing the audience that somebody would take on something that is risky and dangerous and difficult to reach. But you don't need to do that when your heroes are junkies. It's just like the audience gets that. The one thing we all know about junkies is they will do whatever they have to do to get their junk. So they have a very, very short act one. And if that's what your story requires and if it's all your story requires, I would never encourage somebody to add in a sequence to make it, you know, fit a structure, a platonic ideal of a structure. Like I'm always saying it's an approach Um whenever I'm working in Mittel Europa, um, they get very offended when you call it Eastern Europe, like Czechoslovakia, um, or Czech or Slovakia or Poland. 
they like very much to talk about the methodology, you know, and um, I'll always be saying it's not a methodology that's too scientific. It's an approach for looking at stories and it's elastic. It's very elastic. So there isn't a prescribed number of sequences. Um, and, you know, one of, I think one of the great films of the 1970s is Kramer versus Kramer. And Rachel and I once said, oh, let's use it as a teaching film because there are many, many brilliant storytelling aspects in it. And we watched it twice in succession and went, yeah, there are no sequences in this. Or if there are, we couldn't identify them and that's what we do for a living. So they just have one big tension in act two and it completely works. But generally what I see is three or four sequences in act two, two on either side. So it'll usually end up being about eight. And do you feel that things are changing? Because definitely people's tastes are changing. Like people are consuming a lot more TV, things that are maybe more traditional in structure. People are, you know, like they're looking for things that are a bit more unexpected now. And do you feel like that's like taken a step into the film world as well? Or, Well, I think what what never changes is people's need for story that it's a really primal need because it's the way that we make sense of our existence is to tell a story about it. So that starts with telling stories around the fire. Um, You know, as soon as we as uh, homo sapiens have the ability to communicate in that way. And even early cave paintings, they're not rep- just representations of what's around them. They are stories. It's like, the people were starving. It was a cold winter. So the men decided to go hunting and, you know, they got lost and some of them got injured and some of them died, but some of them were brave enough to pursue. And then they found the bear, you know, so there's even information being passed on. But part of the function of a story like that is to say, keep going, keep going. There will always be hope and you too can be a hero and all of those things. So I don't think that people's taste in stories changes but the media or the medium in which stories are being best told changes so to me it makes complete sense that cinema to some extent um replaced reading even though reading's maybe still my favorite thing to do it's a much more immersive experience and it's the best toolbox for telling stories which is why i'm in love with it but what's happened with television um is that Writers have gravitated to television because they have power there. So, and I don't really know why this is, but writers are nearly always producers on television and they're almost never producers in cinema. And so writers who were smart and ambitious in the States were like, well, I guess I'll write television because I don't like seeing my work being changed and chopped up and morphing into something that I never intended. Um, So that's very simply why television is so brilliant at the moment, is that the really, a lot of the really great writers just migrated there. And when that happens, you're just going to have a massive increase in quality. So that's not audience driven, that's writer driven. And then the audience goes, wow, have you seen this? You know, so that's what's happening. And then the industry goes, hey, we'll invent something called Netflix, you know, and then everybody else goes, oh, look what Netflix is doing, you know, now Amazon and Apple and Hulu, etc. So I would say the writer started it, the audience has followed and the industry is following the audience. 
Um, but I would also say when you look at those television dramas, it's the content that's really original and brilliant. They're not really switching up the structure or very few of them are. And, you know, I've talked to writers who write very slippy, trippy content. And I said to one of them, how do you feel about structure? And he said, I am a slave to structure. I am a slave to structure. Um, so I don't think that the shapes of stories change very much. I mean, I loved the OA. Did you see the OA? Yeah, it's it's so different. It's so different. It's just so different. And any time you go, this is where it's going. It's not going there. It's not even going anywhere near there. It's I know. Just... But I felt like I was in such safe hands. Yeah. Like, do you remember how late the credits come in the pilot episode? I can't remember where they are, but I think they're about 25 minutes in. And what leads us into it is the main character. This isn't a spoiler for people who haven't seen it, but do watch it. Um, The main character says she she's reappeared after a, a long dis- disappearance and she's being welcomed home. She's a young woman in her 20s who's been missing since her teens, but she was blind when she went missing and now she can see. But she says some she says to some character everybody wants to know how i got my sight back but far more interesting is how i lost it in the first place when i was a little girl i grew up in russia and you're going wait what <laughs> because you're in suburban america and suddenly the camera's panning across these great snowy wastes and she's like the daughter of a billionaire but i knew from however many minutes it was up till then that i was in safe hands and i knew that they were going to tie this together for me so i didn't mind this massive jump yeah. and but if you look at the OA, the structure of it is pretty classical. The way that they're structuring episodes and scenes is classical. It's the content yeah. that's wildly original. And to me, that's far more interesting. I don't really understand why storytellers would experiment with structure unless it was to produce an effect in the audience. Yeah, that's a good reason to do it. But I just think don't be original with your structure, be classical in your structure, but be madly original in your content. That's what audiences require. And, you know, the way I'd say it is like audiences participate so much in cinema and television stories. And the way in which they participate is by constantly anticipating. Oh, where is this going? Where is this going? I know what's going to happen next. Will she what and so the mice keep getting smarter so you have to build a better mouse trap oh that's such a good description <laughs> well that's like i mean i have that for i think it's an old walter matho movie he keeps going the mice keep getting smarter you know um but it's our job to build a better mouse trap or else it's just not going to be fun um but i think the way that you do that is you move the plot faster 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 but the trick is to make it fast but believable yeah you know um you can't just you can't just throw a lot of nonsense at the screen and go well that was surprising um you know it has to have a thread through it i think i think or at least that's my taste do you have a website where you share a website rachel and i have a website called a dramatic improvement dot com a dramatic improvement so you'll i'm sure there'll be news of your next performance on this 
We tend to just have, you know, our professional work up there. And actually, we need a new website designer, if there's anyone out there, um, to uh, to redesign it. So it's not very up to date. Probably, actually, the best place to follow us is on Facebook, Facebook. which, yeah. you know, I realise is now becoming a little bit old fashioned. But there's a page called A Dramatic Improvement on right. Facebook. And that's so much easier to update um, than the website. So whatever courses we're giving or events we're involved with, that'll be there. Thank you so much for coming in to chat Thanks, to us. Gemma. That was amazing. Always I was raging. I can't take down notes. It would be too noisy. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you can listen back to yeah, it, I guess. Yeah, that's it. At least I have an audio recording. Yeah. But thank you so much thank for chatting. Thank you, Gemma. That was lovely. Steve, was that right?